Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. to Out of the Blue on 3CR, and I'm James Whitmore. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians for the land this show is being broadcast from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. Today we're heading up to the north, to the Great Barrier Reef, to hear about some amazing research going on at Lady Elliot Island. We'll be learning about that right after this announcement. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Giant manta rays, thousands of seabirds, sharks that walk... It sounds like paradise, doesn't it? Well, that paradise is real, and it's called Lady Elliot Island, one of the southernmost islands in the Great Barrier Reef. In this amazing place, researchers are untangling the complex relationships between the land and the sea and showing how this tiny part of the ocean can support such a huge array of life. I spoke to Dr Christine Dudgeon from the University of the Sunshine Coast and a researcher on the Leaf to Reef project on Lady Lady Elliot Island. Hi, Chris. So can you set the scene a little bit for us? Can you tell us a bit about Lady Elliot Island and what makes it so special? Yeah, hi, James. Um, Thanks for asking about it. Uh, Yeah, Lady Elliot Island is an incredible place. So it's quite a small succinct island um, that has a, a fairly small reef around it. It's right at the bottom of the Great Barrier Reef at the southern end. So it's the last island and reef before you leave uh, the Great Barrier Reef and hit the Great Sandy Straits Marine Park where 
the next place essentially is Gari or Fraser Island. Um, so this location makes Lady Elliot special in that uh, it doesn't get as hot there in the water as it does further north up of, in the, the high parts of the tropics. Um, so it, it, the coral reef is exposed to a much bigger range of temperatures. Um, so in winter it gets sort of less than 20 degrees. It can be quite chilly. And in summer it can get up to 28 degrees. So it's a really quite a large temperature range. Uh, the other part of its location is that it's near the continental shelf droplets. So you get these upwelling and nutrient-rich waters, um, which we think is partly why it's a place where you'll see big megafauna, so big marine mammals and, and other sharks and things that will come through that uh, that area. Um, but uh, as an island itself, it's um, the focus of our research program, uh, Leaf to Reef, the Biodiversity of Lady Elliot Island, uh, to do with the vegetation. So back in the nine, uh, back in the 1800s, um, the island was completely denuded of vegetation. So all of the guano was removed because there's a lot of seabirds that were using that island, pooing all over the island. Um, and that guano was really important fertilizer. And so the vegetation was stripped uh, completely off it. Um, then for good measure, they put a few goats on there to sort of uh, in case people were shipwrecked, which kept the vegetation down. And it's only been since really the 1980s that any restoration has occurred. And that's sort of part of the focus of our research program. Um, we also run the Project Manta research uh, uh, on the island. So that's where actually we started working on Lady Elliot several years ago. And, and so Lady Elliot's also very important place for mantas. It has our highest concentration of manta rays on the east coast of Australia. Um, and some of those animals we've now been you know, following for several years. There's one individual. He is, so we have a few records from Lady Elliot Island, which I think is possibly fun. Um, there's one manta ray we call Taurus, so we can tell them apart from their patterns. And Taurus, he was first photographed on the reef at Lady Elliot Island in 1982 and he was a mature manta ray at that part time so we know that because male mantas have external claspers of penis type structures if they're mature they sort of extend past the fins we can see it so we can see that in photographs so he was photographed 1982 we see him almost every year when we go there so we, we've been tracking him for now over 40 years and he would be at least 50 because as a mature animal he would have um have been, uh, you know, at least 10 years old by the time he would have was first photographed. So, uh, he's our, he's our record manta ray. Um, and then we also have a record red tailed tropic bird. So, um, we've been uh, following, there's about six breeding pairs of red tailed tropic birds uh, that live on the island that will come every year to, to breed. And, and we're trying to understand uh, the, the dynamics of that because They've been there for the last couple of decades, but the population hasn't really increased. So we're trying to understand how it's connected to other nesting sites, the closest ones of which are Lord Howe and Rain Island, which are a few thousand kilometres away. Um, when we started our section of banding um, and, and uh, research back in 2020, 
there had been work on this species um, back in the 90s that uh, was being done through Queensland Parks and Wildlife. Um, one of the first birds that we caught had a band on it already. And so we were able to check that band and find that that animal itself had been banded as a small fluffy chick 23 years prior to when we caught it, or him we think it is, the males and females look the same, so we made that inference based on uh, seeing one of his partners lay an egg. And the incredible thing was that he was banded as a small fluffy chick on the exact same scrape of dirt that we caught him on again 23 years later because their nests are just literally a little scrape of dirt on the ground. Uh, and so, you know, there's this extraordinary continue, continuation for these types of animals on this island. So, it's, yeah, it's clearly an important place for lots of different things. And the, research, the restoration effort has been really amazing. Like if you look at photos of the island in the past, completely denuded, now, you know, really looking very amazing. So can you tell us a bit about this Leaf to Reef project that you're working on, which is looking at the connections between the land and the sea. Can you tell us, can you explain a bit about that? Yes, yeah, certainly. So in the tropics, um, so there's this concept called Darwin's paradox when Darwin was traveling around in the, in the tropics and he's trying to understand, you know, how do you have such incredible biodiversity on coral reef systems when there seems to be so little nutrient in the water? So if you compare it to polar regions where you just have, you might have less biodiversity, but you have such great abundances, you know, huge amounts of krill and things where you can feed enormous blue whales and, you know, other massive aggregations of animals. But we don't have that in the tropics. And um, so a large source of nutrients for coral reefs, uh, you know, comes from upwellings, as I was mentioning with the, with the uh, continental shelf edge. But this is why corals have those symbiotic algae or the zooxanthellae that live inside them, because whilst corals will eat plankton um, out of the water column, they need the algae to help sustain energy um, to provide them with that energy that they'll get directly from the sun. But coral islands are also another source of nutrients, and that's where this this study comes into it, because when you have a, a coral reef island like Lady Elliot that's only been around for a few thousand years. So that's built up. It's a coral atoll. So it's, it's been built up from the coral itself. It's not a continental shelf island like other ones that you might find um, in the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, so and, and essentially it starts off as, as just coral rubble, but you get seabirds that come and start nesting on it and they bring the nutrients. So they take, you know, the fish from the oceans and bring that and poo it onto the island. And with that nutrients, then you start to change the surface of the island. Um, it provides soil that then, you know, trees can grow in. Um, and so then you provide, you basically build an entirely new habitat that brings in a whole um, new ecosystem of, of seabirds and, and other organisms that can live on it. Uh, and so for Lady Elliot Island, as I mentioned, Previously, we don't actually know what the vegetation on the island was in the past. Um, there's a lithograph from sort of that time where it's kind of a bit sketchy. There's some birds, there's a bit of shrubbery, but we don't really know what was there. Um, so this restoration project has is largely built around uh, using information of what 
vegetation exists on other Capricorn bunker islands um, to then inform uh, what's happening on Lady Elliot. So that part of the project is is um, been uh, run by Jim Buck, who works for the Lady Elliot Island Eco Resort. It's funded through the Great Barrier Reef Foundation. So Jim and Annie, his wife Annie Buck, they they do all of that work, um, and also uh, informed through the Queensland Herbarium. So a, a, a botanist, Joy Bruce, who's worked there for many, many years and incredibly informed about this, the vegetation in this part of the world. Um, but so one of the very clear um, changes that was noticed on the island was that from the 1980s, when trees became sort of established again, the seabird uh, populations started to come back. So if you if you look back in um, prior to 1980s, there weren't any white cap noddies or the black noddies. Um, we we can see that uh, the red-tailed tropic birds that we've been studying have turned up at that time. We see the silver eyes, the little Capricorn the silver eyes, turned up at that time. Um, the most abundant bird on the island are those black noddies, and we're talking tens of thousands of, of those um, that will come to the island over over a year and, and use the island for nesting um, now. But that's a it's a massive change, and so uh, when you've got you know this huge number of birds that are coming and using the island, they bring an enormous amount of nutrients. So what? bit we are interested in, um, particularly from the marine side, is how much of that nutrient gets into the reef um, and when. So is there a change over time? Do we see an impact of how many birds are on the island with how much nutrient sort of moving into the reef? Uh, a large component of our project, which has been run by Dirk Erler from um, Southern Cross University, has been to understand how the nutrients gets into the reef. So, um, and, and we've uh, worked with uh, other researchers who've actually been able to map the groundwater table underneath the reef. And, and we can see that essentially there's this incredibly concentrated nutrient pool in that groundwater that, that goes into, sort of leaks into the reef through tidal pumping. So it's not sort of this over flow of nutrients that's just sort of coming off the land. It's actually coming out more at depth. Um, and so then we are following that through the reef system um, to try and understand how much of the, that nutrient, which is essentially the fertiliser for the reef, comes from the island versus what's coming up from the sea, from the upwelling. Uh, the Leaf to Reef program is it's a really wonderful program because it's such a comprehensive um, research program right across from the terrestrial environment through, you know, all of the different aspects of, of the reef. And, you know, we're very fortunate to get to work in an environment like this. We work closely as well with the resort staff. So um, the resort has several uh, marine scientists on staff who, who work as tour guides and um, within the activities and, and in the water sports, taking people diving and, um, you know, getting to experience this environment. But they're also, you know, fantastic with providing us with information, actually, you know, directly collaborating with us on, on many aspects of this research. So we're really fortunate to get to work together with them. What an incredible place. We'll be hearing more from Christine and about some very cute walking sharks right after this. 
This is Smoky and Grey by Puritu. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Please support community radio and your local music scene.
You're listening to Out of the Blue, and that was Piritu with Smokey and Grey. I'm, talk to, I'm talking to Dr. Christine Dudgeon about Lady Elliot Island and research that's untangling the connections between the island and the reef around it. One of the species that you're um, studying as part of this research is a rather cute creature called an epaulette shark. Can you tell us a bit about them and, and how they're important for this research? Uh, certainly. So because we're focusing on what's happening on the reef flat, this is sort of the quite shallow component um, that sort of surrounds surrounds the island. Um, epaulette sharks are an important predator in that environment. So these are really quite um, small animals. They get to about 80 centimetres in total length. They're also known as walking sharks. So they have um, this wonderful capacity to withstand very low oxygen environments. So they can come out of the water and actually walk across the reef flat from tidal pool to tidal pool on their little fins. So they're really, you know, quite lovely. I know sometimes people, um, we, we described some new species of epaulette sharks from Indonesia and New Guinea uh, several years ago. And, and um, you know, when we sort of said new species of walking sharks, people imagined, um, you know, great white-sized things walking, you know, terrorising neighbourhoods. And we're like, no, no, it's they're little cute, um, you know, quite snuffly little sharks, if, if I could put it that way. So, um, as I say, they become the top predator during low tide periods because a lot of other animals can't withstand being in that type of environment when the tide goes right out. Um, but epaulets can, and that's when they thrive. So they will, uh, particularly at night time, they'll come out and they'll forage in uh, basically through the sand. So they're looking for small sort of snails and crabs and, and little fish that they can catch at that time. So we use them at, in this particular study. Uh, we're following the nutrients through the food chain, and they, they're our top predator on the reef flat. So we uh, go out to find them at night time, and so we'll... Uh, take a, a tiny little bit of uh, tissue um, that we can then examine their uh, stable isotope signature um, with that. But but we also do other work with the with the epaulette sharks. So we've had an honor student just into Shackleton who's been examining um, the population genetic structure throughout the Great Barrier Reef um, and and comparing that with their body patterns. So they. They're quite uh, ornate, spotty little sharks, and those body patterns vary depending on where they're found on the Great Barrier Reef. There's been some really interesting research that suggests that Lady Elliot Island might serve as a kind of climate refuge as the planet continues to warm. Can you explain a bit about that and how that connects to this project that you're on? Yes, yeah, so Lady Elliot um, is being at the very southern end of uh, the Great Barrier Reef, um, the research into uh, climate change uh, or movement, uh, particularly of marine animals in response to changing conditions, uh, overall shows a pattern of movements towards the poles, whether you're in the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere. So the, the areas that are being impacted more with the, uh, those tropical areas that, um, which are, you know, they're being subjected to increased temperatures for sustained periods. So cor coral bleaching occurs when, um, uh, you know, coral is, is, uh, put under this stressful condition such as hot temperatures. Uh, and so the algae will leave the coral and or be expelled. And if 
the conditions recover quickly. So if the water temperature drops quickly, the algae can come back uh, and the coral can recover. But if it if it's not done in a fast enough time, then generally there's a bit of a shift from that being a live coral animal to then it becoming more of a reef matrix and covered in algae. And we've seen those sorts of shifts in other environments, um, particularly in the Caribbean, where there's been an entire phase shift from a coral-based environment to an algal-based environment because the reef has been stressed and damaged and hasn't had an opportunity to recover. So what we have found in the Great Barrier Reef over uh, the last couple of decades are had, there has been a series of uh, bleaching events. One of the biggest concerns is that when these are so frequent that the reef doesn't get a, an opportunity to recover in between those events, that you, you sort of have that sustained damage. And that has occurred further north. Um, we haven't seen a lot of bleaching in the southern part of the Great Barrier Reef. We did have an event a few years ago, back in 2020. There was a really hot period. The, the water was so warm. I, I came up from a dive. I was up at Lady Elliot in February uh, of that year. And as we came up through the surface water, it was just like coming through a hot bath. You could notice the difference. It was extraordinary. Um, at that time, there was bleaching and there was also uh, quite a lot of a fish die-off. Um, so the we think that the, the pools around the reef flat became uh, deoxygenated because of the stress, stressed out corals as well. Um, but it recovered pretty well. So the important thing about that, the southern part of the Great Barrier Reef is, is that because the, you don't have those extreme temperatures, you don't have the sustained higher temperatures, it has an opportunity to recover. We have seen a little bit more bleaching this year, again, because it has been a bit warmer. But again, it's recovering, it's recovering well. So overall, the pattern is that the Southern Great Barrier Reef hasn't been subjected to that type of stress that you find further north. Um, given that these marine animals from the north are migrating south uh, to escape, uh, you know, higher temperatures, then it's likely that they will come more towards Lady Elliot Island and other parts of the Southern Reef and that this will potentially be a refuge for those animals that need to escape those conditions. Um, we, as part of that project, uh, I, I just one thing I haven't mentioned is that Lady Elliot Island Reef, it's, it is a green zone. So in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority zoning, green zone is a is your highest sort of level of protection. And it and it's a fantastic place because you can see it's a healthy reef and it's teeming with life right through the trophic system. So you've got, you can be in the water with things like, you know, large coral trouts, which will avoid people at all costs anywhere. There's sort of fishing to be allowed. Here, they just come up and look at you. They're not worried about us because we don't, we're not posing a threat to them. So it is actually, it's a really healthy reef system. And so we would expect that it would provide a refuge for those animals that need to, to leave other parts of the reef that are stressed. Um, and so as part of that work, one of our um, research projects we call BioBlitz, and this is documenting uh, firstly all the vertebrate species uh, on the reef and on the island. Um, and this has been a really fun project. And, and as part of that, we actually think we have some new fish species that we're in the process of describing. That was Dr Christine Dudgeon from the University of the Sunshine Coast talking about the Leaf to Reef project. 
To listen to this episode again or any of our previous shows, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. We'll be with you again next week, and in the meantime, stay well.